Good evening. I am Myra Rivera, professor of religion and Latinx studies at Harvard University. Thank you so much for being here. This, in times such as these, your presence and your support takes an additional meaning. It is a pleasure and such a great honor to introduce Professor Marla Frederick, a distinguished scholar, a generous colleague, and an impressive leader in the academy and beyond. After completing her bachelor's degree in English at Spelman College, Professor Frederick did her PhD in cultural anthropology at Duke University. Her dissertation was entitled, The Cultural Politics of Religious Experience, African-American Women's Spirituality and Activism in the, in the Contemporary U.S. South. Professor Frederick taught at the University of Cincinnati and the, uni and the Interdenominational Theological Center before moving to Harvard University, where she taught for 16 years in the departments of African and African American Studies and the Committee on the Study of Religion. She was chair of the Committee on the Study of Religion as well as of the Department of African and African American Studies and earned the admiration of her colleagues and deans for her collaborative spirit and her wise leadership. In 2019, Professor Frederick moved to Emory University, where she is now Asa Gibbs Candler, Professor of Religion and Culture, and we miss her dearly. Professor Frederick is an extraordinary teacher whose interests encompass the anthropology of religion and African-American religious experience. Her dedication and gifts as a teacher were recognized with the Harvard College Professor Award for Distinguished Teaching. Professor Frederick's research interests include the study of religion and media, religion and economics, and the sustainability of black institutions. She's a leading ethnographer who employs an interdisciplinary approach to examine the overlapping spheres of religion, race, gender, media, politics, and economics. A former colleague of hers shared this. While Professor Frederick is known as by many as an ethnographer, collaborating and teaching with her, she came to be known she came to know, I came to know that, she, that Professor Frederick holds and shares an incredible breadth of knowledge in history, theology, and literature. She's also committed to extending her skills as a scholar and has experimented with ethnographic filmmaking. Her first book, Between Sundays, Black Women's Everyday Struggles for Faith, is an ethnographic study of black women's faith lives in North Carolina. It explores how faith informs not only the social and political lives of women, but also their personal lives. As one reviewer puts it, this wonderfully written book gives voice to women whose lives and actions may have gone unnoticed in the academy. It is rare to find a book as finely written as this one, one that puts a human face in sociological analysis. Her second monograph, Colored Television, American Religion Gone Global, analyzes how African American and African descended producers, distributors, and consumers of religious broadcasting approach and make meaning of mediated religion. It addresses concerns related to the rise of prosperity 
ministries in poor communities, as well as the rise of African-American religious broadcasters on television in and beyond the United States. Her publications are recognized by her peers for the highly nuanced and textual analysis, as well as for the collaborative nature of the research. Those of us who serve on the AAR board have had the pleasure of experiencing firsthand not only her wisdom and vision as a leader, but also her generosity as a colleague and as a human being. The AAR has been fortunate to have such a capable leader in these difficult times. Tonight, we have the privilege of listening and learning from these amazing scholars. Professor Frederick's lecture is entitled, Religion, Inequality, and the Will to Stop. Please join me in welcoming the president of the American Academy of Religion, Marla Frederick. Thank you, Myra, for such a warm and deeply moving introduction. Um, you have been a really tremendous vice president and confidant and someone I can really talk to about the issues we face. Um, it's been a real pleasure to work with you on the board of the AAR and to work with what I believe has just been an extraordinary board of directors at large for the American Academy of Religion. Myra, would you bring me that bottle of water? The bottle, the same bottle of water I almost choked on during your introduction, uh, but I might need it. Before I start, I would really like to thank several people for their tireless work this year. I would first like to thank Alice Hunt, our extraordinary executive director. Um, she has helped us weather more storms over the last 20 months or so since the start of the pandemic than any executive director should ever have to. She and her team at the AAR, including Robert Puckett, our ever fastidious program director, they have worked to make this year's annual meeting for the very first time, and I know they're thinking, and I hope for the very last time, um, a dual format meeting with both in-person and virtual platforms in order to attend to the needs and concerns of a broad range of our constituents. Let me go down in history in saying that this is no small feat the logistics are extraordinary. It is one thing to plan a fully in-person meeting and yet another thing to plan a fully virtual meeting. It is something altogether different to plan a simultaneously in-person and a virtual meeting, especially with deadlines and formats and recommendations consistently changing. I wanna give my hats off to Alice to Robert and to the entire staff of the American Academy of Religion. We, without them, we certainly would not have been able to pull this off, so thank you. Um, in addition to thanking Alice and Robert and so many people who have worked hard day in and day out, not only for the production of this conference, but just for the work of the AAR, to make the AAR the type of professional organization that advocates on behalf of scholars daily, scholars who work in university settings as well as those in other nonprofits or governmental agencies or in business and corporate environments. I generally wouldn't name names because it is time consuming, but we really could not have come through this year without the extraordinary work of an exemplary team. So please bear with me in these unusual times 
as I do an unusual thing, and that is to name each and every one of the staff who behind the scenes make the AAR work. Our executive director, Alice Hunt, Nicole Franklin, our chief finance and administration officer, Robert Puckett, our chief scholarly engagement officer, Dory Tony, our chief public engagement officer, Catherine Broussard, our director of marketing and communications, Sarah Levine, director of publications, Matt Veeson, director of membership, Kimberly Davis, senior editor, reading religion, Jane Smith, accounting manager, Sandy Stevens, events manager, Elizabeth Hardcastle, governance and executive office specialist, Marion Pierre, public program specialist, Sarah Castle, scholarly engagement coordinator, Alexa Abdallah, writer and content creator, Marion Pierce, public programs specialist, Sierra Whitaker, membership services coordinator, and Tiana Lewis, our scholarly engagement coordinator. I wanna thank each of them for working individually and corporately to advance the important work of the American Academy of Religion. In addition to them, I would also like to thank the Board of Trustees for their Board of Directors for their unwavering support of the AAR, their commitment to excellence, and their voluntary sacrifice of time and energy on, beh on behalf of the issues that matter most to all of us. They have been incredible sounding boards as we have made decisions throughout the year, always with the intent of making the organization stronger, more effective, and more centrally focused on our mission. And finally, I would like to thank all of you who make up the AAR, regional directors and officers, our various committee members and book award jurors, our program committee chairs deserve a huge round of applause for attending to the many changes attached to holding this dual format meeting under very challenging circumstances. To each and every member, you have kept at center the critical work of the AAR, and you've continued to push us forward towards the excellence in the study of religion. Thank you, thank you, and thank you. As Alice likes to say, we all really are the AAR, each and every one of us. Together we have been able to build upon already established efforts to support research in the study of religion, awarding grants for research, hosting webinars to advance the public understanding of religion, supporting publications in our various journals, and supporting our regional conferences. We've worked to provide support to contingent faculty and scholars who have been in financial distress, awarding COVID relief grants with the support of the Luce Foundation grant. In addition, we have continued the work of the Futures Task Force under the ever faithful leadership of Dr. Catherine McClyman. She and her team were charged last year with assessing where we are as an organization and asking important questions about the ongoing work of the AAR especially in light of the real challenges posed by COVID-19, the ever-changing face of higher education, and the decline in the humanities. They will continue their work for another year and then offer suggestions. Alongside the American Council of Learned Societies, we've been asking important questions about the work of learned societies in this moment. And so we continue to move forward with the tremendous leadership of the staff, the board, and each and every member of the AAR. In preparing for this address, I did something that any astute scholar might do, but maybe I shouldn't have done. I went back and I listened to the messages of the most recent past presidents. This can have a clarifying effect. It answers questions like, what in the world am I supposed to discuss with my esteemed colleagues spread across a plethora of disciplines and traditions? How do you begin to bring a message to such a diverse and learned community? And yet this listening to past presidents can also be one of the most humbling experiences of one's career with questions like, 
How does one measure up to the philosophical, the analytical, and the historical genius of those in whose footsteps I now walk? And yet the moments of listening at the same time carry a sobering effect, as one realizes that sadly many of the concerns and challenges weighing on immediate past presidents are some of the same concerns and challenges that bear down on us today. The conditions of our world and the context for our work have not dramatically changed. Today, as we did four years ago, we worry about the crisis facing American democracy and democratic possibilities around the world. The rise of white nationalist discourse, both nationally and internationally, aided and abetted by religious fundamentalism, seemingly impenetrable to critique. A world of growing economic inequality that seeks to siphon the world into the extreme haves and the perpetually poor have nots. A world of racial animus that many hoped would attenuate given the lessons learned of slavery, Jim Crow, and apartheid. But a world seemingly built on ignoring the lessons of the past at best or rewriting history at worst. A world where religious fundamentalism relegates women to second-class citizens, stifling the potential for their growth, their children's growth, and their nation's growth. A world whose changing climate stands to threaten the way of life for billions on the planet as mudslides, forest fires, extreme drought, and hurricanes destabilize the ways of life around the globe leading to mass migrations of people from places once habitable and thriving. In the past two years, we have added to all of this a global pandemic that has trained our eyes ever more intently to the death spiral of economic inequality, where wealthy nations have vaccines to spare, vaccines that in their early days went unused and discarded in communities where vaccine hesitancy reigns and conspiracy theories abound, while those in the poorest countries die daily for want of a vaccine. Our nation, with a roughly 57% fully vaccinated rate, uses carrots and sticks to coerce the most reluctant to receive the vaccine, while some poor countries, like India, with a vaccination rate of 27%, Countries in Africa with a less than 5% vaccination rate, like Ghana with a vaccination rate of 2.7%, or Nigeria with a 1.6%, or Mali with a 1.4%. They beg Western governments to make the vaccine more available to their populations to stop the death spirals. The world of inequality in which we inhabit seems to punish the poor while offering more and more options to the wealthy. Into this conundrum steps religion, not as an innocent, distant, and objective observer. Religion steps in as perpetrator as well as protester. Religion aids and abets, just as it disrupts and averts. It is both womb and salve, virus, if you will, and vaccine. And we, as scholars of religion, are called upon to make sense of it all, to help disaggregate the, disaggregate the parts into a meaningful and coherent whole. Our mission as the AAR, after all, commends us to foster excellence in the academic study of religion and enhance the public understanding of religion. It is a lofty charge indeed, but ever more needed in our troubling times. This year's theme, Religion, Poverty, and Inequality, contemplating our collective futures, ask our feel in all of its variety to direct our attention towards poverty and inequality, focusing particularly on the social, ideological, and textual interpretations of various traditions that help us understand how religion aids, impedes, and or amends our common life. For the next few moments, I wanna speak with you on the subject religion, inequality, and the will to stop. As many have stated over the past year, we have experienced the twin pandemics of COVID-19 and exacerbated racial tensions. But this has not been entirely new. 
Indeed, these past several years have animated the ways in which race and religion, at least here in these United States, are co-constitutive of one another. The combination of racism, greed, and the quest for power, often sanctioned by religious ideology, stands to exacerbate social inequality. Countless scholarly books have been written over the past few years that have taken to task the history of religion, race, gender, and social inequality. They have given us much to consider, and I've certainly appreciated this research and the introspection that it causes. This year, while we were all in quarantine, I enhanced a regular hobby, walking. I did it more consistently, not not every day, but more consistently than before. Uh, For the most part, I walked along the outskirts of a large, beautiful park near my home, allowing me to clear my mind, work off extra pandemic pounds, and experience the beauty of Atlanta's green spaces. Who knew that Atlanta is known as the city of trees or the city in a forest? Stuck at home like everyone else, trying to mask up and stay as far away from people as possible. I walked outside for a minimum of about 7,000 steps. The exercise helped not only my physical health, but my mental health, allowing me to clear my mind and ponder even what I might say in these few moments. What I know for sure is that it is difficult to write a message for one's colleagues. And then in the midst of a global pandemic and a crisis in race relations, it is doubly hard. What do you say that has not already been said? And what do you say that helps advance the cause of justice that is not already known? How much truth telling can people absorb? Nevertheless, I want to invite you to walk with me, to retrace my steps, metaphorically, if you will, for the next few moments. On these walks, I listen to books, often political nonfiction, especially early on in the pandemic, to help make sense of our tumultuous political world. I listened to Mary Trump's interpretation of her uncle and her grandfather and their family pathologies. I listened to Michael Cohen, closest confidant and former fixer-in-chief of the Trump dynasty, expose and lament his his loss of a moral and ethical core that cost him the respect of his daughters. And I listened to Obama's long, deeply engaging memoir, A Promised Land. His knack for detail, his penchant for a type of self-deprecation that makes you at home in his world, and even his comedic storytelling of adventures with Michelle, Sasha, and Malia reminded me that as much as he is a Harvard Law graduate, he is also, and possibly most importantly, the son of an anthropologist. Details he seemed to understand, even down to Geertsian winks, twitches, and blinks, matter in great storytelling. In addition to nonfiction works, I took up my share of fiction, but less so. Edwin Dondicott, Octavia Butler, and Jamaica Kincaid were favorites, but it was listening to Toni Morrison read her own words in Beloved that stopped me in my tracks. I had been a fan of The Bluest Eye and Sula as a young college student at Spelman. Having graduated from the public schools of South Carolina in honors and accelerated programs, no less. It was only in the classroom at Spelman where I was first ever assigned a book to read that was written by a black person. Let that sink in. What damage is done to our democracy when we are told that only certain stories, certain lives, certain narratives matter? What are the social consequences of a generation of black, brown, and white children growing up only exposed to white literary icons? I believe that we are in part today living with those consequences. At Spelman, I devoured the works of black women writers, but in all this reading, I had never seriously taken up Morrison's masterpiece, Beloved. I danced around it, 
watched a movie about it, but never really made it my friend. On these walks, however, where I chose to listen to the deep, raspy, pointed, and peculiar voice of Toni Morrison, read her own imagination off the page. I found myself rushing out the door in the early morning hours because I wanted to retreat into the world she so delicately crafted and hear her story in all of its parts. Her truth-telling so piercing, her insights so disarmingly provocative. Set in the late 1800s, Baby Suds Holy, one of the main characters stands as the wisdom of the novel. She is the matriarch and breeder of eight children, a former enslaved woman who had escaped to freedom. Her 19th century world takes us back in time. Almost all eight of her children lost, Morrison tells us. Baby Suggs wholly warned other enslaved people about the dangers of loving anything or anyone too much. Love was a privilege only those free enough to hold on to love could afford. Despite her cries, pleas, tears, and petitions, slave owners had taken and sold all of her children, all but one. Slave life had ultimately, quote, busted her legs, her back, head, eyes, hands, kidneys, womb, and tongue, Morrison tells us. Now aged and sickly, she issued a different kind of word, one not reminding her descendants to not love others, but one calling on them to love themselves. In one of the most famous passages in the book, Suggs says to all those who have gathered in the clearing, in this here place, we flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet in grass, love it, love it hard. But after this, sometime later in the novel, her tone turns more solemn. She's not issuing a call to not love others or a call to love themselves, but rather a reflection on life as she sees it. As she nears her final days on earth, Morrison tells us that baby Suggs withdrew to herself, only coming out briefly to issue one final word to her loved ones. The novel had us at times reading of Jesus and God and the hopeful possibilities of freedom. Yet in this moment, baby Suggs Holy musters enough strength in her last days to get out of her deathbed, walk to the entrance of the living room, and utter her final words on earth, words that would leave them holding that thought, Morrison tells us, forever. She writes, except for an occasional request for color, she said practically nothing until the afternoon of the last day of her life when she got out of bed, skipped slowly to the door of the keeping room and announced to Setha and Denver the lesson she had learned from her 60 years a slave and 10 years free that there was no bad luck in the world with white people. They don't know when to stop. She returned to her bed, Morrison tells us, pulled up the quilt and left them to hold that thought forever. As Morrison tells the story, it is for some unsettling, deeply disturbing, and a peculiar reflection in our 21st century world there are, after all, white people who have done good, abolitionists, historically black college and university founders, freedom fighters. We know this from history and from the present. It is a jolt to some of our 21st century sensibilities to read Morrison's words. But Morrison says that we will sit with this thought forever. It is as if Morrison is prophetic in her utterance. And I promise you, when I wrote this speech, it was long before the governor's race in Virginia and school boards across the country weren't up in arms about critical race theory and Toni Morrison novels. But she said that we would sit with her thought, this 
indictment on history's actors, this interpretation of their deeds forever. And so I am sitting here with you, with her thoughts, because it captured me in the most profound ways as I meditated on our theme for this year, religion and social inequality. No luck, she says, but people. Surrendering the possibility that a world of chance or charms exists, it is as if she is relinquishing the possibility that a world of intangible beings are orchestrating realities here on earth or that a transcendent other, a god or gods, are dictating the beginnings from the end. It is as if Morrison is surrendering through baby subs, wholly, the very will towards the religious, the ethereal, the mysterium tremendum, and instead laying our social problem right here at our very own feet. It raises questions for those of us who are religion scholars as it reinforces some of the very questions that we ask. What, after all, is the religious? And especially in these political times, where does the world of religion end and the simple will of people begin? The will especially towards power and control. There is no luck but people, and not just people, Morrison writes, white people. In our 21st century world, I think Baby Suggs' proclamation might better be understood as the longevity of white supremacy. Cultural anthropologists have long taught us that race is not fixed and determined, that white and black people are not biologically formed, but rather socially constructed. And even as some work to erase race completely, given its constructedness, anthropologist Lee Baker explains that although disregarding race is logically accurate and theoretically sound in terms of biological categories, it is historically, socially, and politically problematic. It disregards the complex processes of racial formation and evades racism that socially constructed systems of whiteness operationalized through white supremacy have had deleterious effects on all of us. That white supremacy, this wanting and striving for superiority, for conquest, for control, has set the world's stage on fire. From slavery across the Atlantic, to the destruction of native populations, to the colonization of Africa, India, South America, and Central America. But don't be mistaken. White supremacy destroys white even as it destroys black and brown people. Martin Luther King worried about the very souls of white people. While contemporary medical scholar Jonathan Metzl writes in Dying of Whiteness that the belief in white supremacy and the attempts to hold others down is literally killing white people. As more relaxed gun laws have increased deaths by gun violence in white communities through suicide and domestic disputes, as deaths from lack of health care skyrocket, and as the lifespan of whites is shortened by the erosion of public schooling and the disinvestment in education, we are in fact witnessing the first decline in the life expectancy for whites in decades, white supremacy destroys us all. And surprisingly, you don't need white people to promote white supremacy. Anybody can do it. As sociologist Eduardo Bonilla Silver explains in his now classic work, Racism Without Racist, hunting for racists is a bad idea. Instead, for him, because racism is systematic, it is, quote, above anything about practices and behaviors that produce a racial structure, a network of social relations at social, political, economic, and ideological levels that shapes the life chances of various races. In other words, it is a well-run machine, chugging along as designed, producing health, economic, educational, and social disparities at will. Black, Indian, Latino leaders, 
thus can all reproduce the status quo by allowing the system to go unchallenged. The will to stop, however, to ask the questions about why inequality persists and to change course is thus the challenge for us all. They don't know when to stop. How much pain and suffering is enough? How much money? How much comfort? How many homes? How many yachts? How much land? How much oil? How much extraction? How much power? How much erasure and rewriting of history is enough? They don't know when to stop. White supremacy operates as an all-encompassing ideology, working to conquer and control as opposed to exist in cooperation and community. It feeds on greed and comfort. Honoree Jeffries writes in her highly acclaimed novel, The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois, quote, the original transgression of this land was not slavery, it was greed, and it could not be contained. The will to stop, Baby Suggs intimates, is what might very well make us human, give us the ability to empathize with one another, the ability to see where my convenience ends and your humanity begins, where my rights cease and your rights begin, where my greed stops because the need for your provision begins. Everything, Morrison writes, depends on knowing how much good is knowing when to stop. Religious communities and texts have long issued edicts on the limitations of the human desire for more, more money, more power, more stuff. Whether Buddhist, Jewish, Hindu, Yoruba, or Christian, the warnings against greed and gluttony and power have been consistent. They want us humans to exercise restraint, to have limitations. Buddhist teachings on the three poisons, greed, ignorance, and hatred, caution about the dangers of greed both personally and corporately. Yes, greed can destroy your personal life, and corporately, war, global conflict, and environmental destruction can destroy communities and nations. Hindu teachings on loba, or greed, the first of the three roots of evil, has been described as the excessive desire, especially the desire to appropriate to oneself what belongs to other. That too is the, against the principles of Dharma. Muslim teachings on Shua, often translated as greediness or covetousness, refers to a soul that is both greedy and miserly. The person not only wants everything for himself, he is also unwilling to let others share in it with him. And Christian teachings have long warned about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the deceitful pride of life, traits that come from the world, the scriptures argue, not from God. These traditions established across time and space and known and studied in part by many of us for their intra and interconflicts and wars have surprisingly profound agreement on this one point. In their warnings, there is an implicit and explicit invocation of a will to stop. And sometimes, in the most profound ways, these warnings lead to action. When I entered the world of religious studies, I came in through anthropology. As scholars of religion, we all come to these questions differently. Some enter as historians, others as theologians and ethicists, still others as sociologists and political scientists, and yet others as philosophers and experts in textual analysis. Regardless of how we enter this study, our findings are critical to interpreting history as well as our contemporary existence. I was fascinated when I entered the study of religion by a community's ability to force a stop, a cease and desist on a multinational corporation. Our team of researchers and I were curious. How could a small rural community of black senior citizens force upon the county the first moratorium on industrialized hog farming in the state of North Carolina? What manner of prayer meetings took place here? 
My curiosity was piqued, and so as an anthropologist, I packed up and moved to Halifax County, North Carolina, one of the poorest areas of the state, a region known as the Black Belt, where the majority of enslaved people were brought in at the port off the coast during slavery. I wanted to know what religion did here in eastern North Carolina, where the campaign against environmental racism was launched. I was interested in not necessarily what faith leaders say faith does, nor what the text commends it to do, but rather what religion actually does on the ground in the lives of everyday people. I thus came to the study of religion through the grain-covered towns of Tillery, Weldon, Scotland Neck, and Roanoke Rapids. Highways and dusty roads, corn patches and a paper mill, old mansions and abandoned wood structures. Black, brown, and native people making their way through systems not necessarily built for their success. In the midst, poverty and inequality shone through like sunlight on a hot summer's day. The city's 90% white, the county 90% black. The school system in the city top rated and well funded. The county systems underperforming and poor. The streets of many neighborhoods in the city, paved and sidewalks. The streets of the poorest black neighborhoods in the county, dusty, with outhouses out back. In the center of this logic sat religion. Stately, always a stately, well-manicured Methodist church in the city, and an equally stately and well-appointed First Baptist church not far away. The spiritual homes of the city's kings and queens, and king and queen makers. A black First Baptist church, a referendum in part on the other First Baptists, and generally home to the city's middle-class black workers and part-time agitators. There are then the Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal, non-denominational churches, and maybe a mosque or two, but never as prominently situated as the Methodist and the First, ba first, and the first, first Baptist church. A host of sanctuaries marking the history and social landscape of the, of the region. Religion itself often reflects and illuminates the inequalities we see in society. But Halifax is simply a microcosm of a larger world, a world in which religion does, again, what it does in Halifax. It disrupts, it maintains, it condones, it protests and accommodates at various times and in meandering ways. Nevertheless, it is there, pronounced at times and just under the surface at others. It remains the often unnamed puppet master in countless social dramas, from bedrooms to boardrooms, limiting and justifying the acquisition and distribution of power, both personal and corporate. The calls to stop industrialized hog farming in Halifax County came from a community of people vested in the best interest of themselves and their neighbors. They did not turn away. They knew that a pause was necessary for their survival. Similarly, this past year, the pandemic and accompanying calls to racial justice after the murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, and Breonna Taylor demanded that we not continue life as usual. We all had to stop. The entire world took a forced and necessary sabbatical, though complicated by the privileges and disadvantages of race, place, and class. We took sabbaticals from travel, from gathering, from meetings, from hiring the usual people, from giving the expected donations, from honoring the normal people. Corporations, colleges, and universities, other nonprofit organizations all issued statements calling upon us to stop and reevaluate. We had to determine another way forward. And we learned that stopping is not necessarily bad. To stop is to give room, to rest, to reassess, to regroup, and to reimagine. There have been many calls to stop, particularly calls to stop systems that run unchecked, systems built without everyone in mind, systems set up to run undisturbed and unbothered by outside pressure. The criminal justice system, the educational system, the healthcare system, the tax system, the political system, and the system of capitalism, they've all been challenged to stop in some way and to revisit, to reevaluate. With COVID ravishing communities around the world, capitalism itself was brought to a halt or to a near halt. 
let's sit with that. Capitalism itself had to take a break. And with that, people have been re-evaluating. CEO salaries compared to worker salaries, health and safety guidelines, the quest for money in exchange for people's privacy. They've been asking how much is enough with the deaths of countless unarmed black people at the hands of police, the protests that brought our cities to a standstill all demanded that we reevaluate the criminal justice system, the manner of policing in this country. Despite the breakthrough success of Michelle Alexander's 2010 book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in an Age of Colorblindness, O'Brien Stevenson's Just Mercy in 2015, and the important scholarship on mass incarceration that attends these two books, it wasn't until a white officer knelt on the neck of a black man for nine minutes and 29 seconds, four minutes and 45 seconds as Floyd cried out for help, 53 seconds as Floyd flailed due to seizures, and three minutes and 51 seconds as Floyd was non-responsive, that the world said, we need to stop. Watching that was like hearing Tony, C Tony Morrison whisper, they don't know when to stop. Good is knowing when to stop. And so the entire world hearing this demanded a stop. International protests emerged demanding that we stop, reevaluate and reimagine not only what policing might look like, but what social services might look like in times of crisis. And then with dangerously high greenhouse gases emitted annually, the forced stop brought on by the pandemic created space for lakes and rivers to heal, for wildlife to come alive again, and for our air quality to improve. These changes didn't come because people simply willed them to be. They came because somebody or something forced a stop and issued a call to reevaluate. Given the rapid changes in our universities, decreased investment in the humanities and social sciences, increased reliance on contingent labor, the politicalization of tenure and promotion cases on front page news, as well as the acknowledgement that many of the country's most noted institutions were built from investments in slavery Universities and learned societies have been called to task. Universities are reevaluating their role in slavery, asking important questions about their responsibility to the descendants of the enslaved, how their public spaces might better reflect the history of freedom fighters and not enslavers and segregationists, and what their ongoing work for justice might entail. In similar fashion, the American Council of Learned Societies announced their strategic priorities for 2020 to 2024, which include a plan to encourage scholars and scholarship responsive to the needs and interests of diverse communities, where they have specific, placed specific attention on meeting the needs of contingent faculty and scholars who teach beyond the university settings, and where a second priority is to strengthen relationships and address challenges together where they're reaching out more intentionally to historically black colleges and universities and other minority-serving institutions and increasing the diversity of their member societies, inviting the National, Women's National Women's Studies Association and the Association for the Study of African American Life and History to the ACLS this year. Much of this work brought on because we were all forced to stop and reevaluate our organizational priorities in the midst of the pandemic and social rest, unrest of 2020. We at the American Academy of Religion, <coughs> since the pandemic and even before then, uh, began to engage in a similar process of stopping and revisiting our work. Through the Futures Task Force, we have been asking ourselves hard and important questions about the future of the AAR, what it looks like, who it serves, especially given the increasing numbers of contingent faculty and religion scholars who work beyond the academy. We've been asking ourselves what it looks like for our organization to reflect at every level our commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, 
including at the level of our finances. In response, as a board, we voted unanimously to ensure that at least 40% of our endowment is always invested in black or African-American, Latino or Latinx, Asian Pacific Islander, or indigenous minority-owned financial services firms. This is often the third rail of diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. We should all be asking our universities if they've stopped and considered where their endowments are held and whether the way we've done it for the last 100 years needs to be the way we do it for the next 100 years. Hiring white law firms and white financial services institutions and white accounting firms. Nearly 98% of all nonprofit endowments are held with white-owned financial services companies. As Stephen Rogers in his Harvard case study on one black-owned business, he cites the interviewees. And he says, although many firms publicly proclaim that they value diversity and inclusion, far too many systematically exclude African-American-owned companies. When firms do elect to retain black-owned firms, it is for the low-margin catering and construction work and not the high-margin professional services work where wealth is created. The Old Boys Network is alive and well and continues to exclude African-American-owned businesses owners from the mainstream, end quote. Our efforts at the American Academy of Religion are important, as are the efforts at colleges and universities and other learned societies. We can only affect positive change by reevaluating what we have been doing and ascertaining what is critically important. The calls to stop, the need to take reprieve, to reevaluate has been critical for the future of our institutions. The university of the 21st century is not the university of the 20th century and neither is the American Academy of Religion. The pandemic and the calls for racial justice emerging from last summer have accelerated our appreciation of that fact. And it requires us, each one of us, to be on, the board, on board for not only institutional evaluation, but also self-evaluation. We have to ask ourselves the hard questions. Where do I need to stop? What is my role in this madness? What is in my purview that calls for reevaluation and reimagining? In our schools, on our committees, especially our admissions, hiring, tenure, promotion committees, especially, we have to ask ourselves how might my intervention in this matter lead to more diverse and inclusive environments? Does my syllabus tell the fuller story? the perspectives not generally known and appreciated? How might my decisions yield better outcomes, not only for me, but for my students, for my program, and for my university? And in spaces beyond the university, how might we reevaluate re the work we do to create more just outcomes? And for all of us, in what ways might my scholarship be better used for the public good? This pandemic has upended all of our lives. We are indeed gathered here today in mixed format, as in an in-person and a virtual meeting. We aren't congregating the same way we did in 2019. The ground, as my colleague Walter Fluker might say, has shifted. And increased attention to racial justice efforts have commended us to stop and reevaluate our commitments as scholars and scholars of religion in particular. This work has been important and remains so. As the American Academy of Religion, we did one final exciting gesture in our efforts at reevaluating this year, and we want you to join us in this work. We asked ourselves what it looks like for the American Academy of Religion to hold space for the excellence of the scholars that have walked this road, seeking justice, and left a true and lasting legacy. In light of that, in honor of their fierce commitment 
to the life of the mind, their dedication to their students, their high commitment to the mission and vision of the AAR, and their commitment to the larger world even beyond the AAR. We have established three American Academy of Religion Awards in Excellence. We have renamed the Excellence in Teaching Award in honor of Dr. Katie Geneva Cannon. We have established the Excellence in Mentoring Award named in honor of Dr. James Cone. and the Excellence in Service Award, named in honor of Dr. Lawrence Mamiya. Please join me as we acknowledge their commitment to the American Academy of Religion, their excellence in the study of religion, and their dedication to making this entire world better through their scholarship and service. The American Academy of Religion is proud to introduce the AAR Awards in Excellence. Three academic honors dedicated to exceptional teaching, mentorship, and public service. Each award is named in honor of an AAR scholar, innovator, giant. The first is the Katie Geneva Cannon Excellence in Teaching Award, recognizing outstanding achievement in the classroom. Katie Cannon, the renowned social ethicist, theologian, and womanist scholar, was first and foremost a beloved teacher and brilliant pedagogue. Her teaching and scholarship of systematic analysis of race, sex, and class gave shape to not only how ethics, theology, and religion were taught, but also how it was lived out beyond the classroom. As a teacher, she created living laboratories of learning to challenge and inspire her students to be exemplars of what they taught. The next is the James H. Cohn Excellence and Mentoring Award, recognizing dedication to developing young scholars. Known as the founder of Black Liberation Theology, James Cohn wrote seminal books capturing the spirit of the civil rights and black power movements of the 60s. His scholarly astuteness, tenacity of purpose, and his effusive words of insight and support have been the guiding force in the making of religious leaders, theologians, and civic activists around the globe. He has mentored generations of scholars, and his life work has been foundational in inspiring institutions who have claimed his life work as a mission of their own. The third award is the Lawrence H. Mamiya Excellence in Public Service Award recognizing an individual who, through research and activism, has bettered the world at large. Born in Hawaii, professor in Poughkeepsie, community activist in East Harlem, voter advocate in Georgia, LGBTQ minister in San Francisco, and prison reformist in upstate New York over a 50-year career. Lawrence Mamiya turned his research into the fieldwork of public advocacy and social change to the service of humanity. To endow the AAR Awards in Excellence, we need your support to honor these scholars, to uphold the values they represent, and to continue to promote the public understanding of religion, an understanding that creates a better world for all. Dr. Katie Geneva Cannon, James Cohn, and Lawrence Mamiya inspire us all. May we all stop, reevaluate, and chart a better, more just, and more equitable course forward. Thank you.